You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Hi, friends. Good to be with you. Thomas A. Anderson is a man who's living two lives. By day, he is an average computer programmer, and by night, he is a hacker known as Neo. Morpheus awakens Neo to the real world, which is a ravaged wasteland where most humanity has been captured by a race of machines that live off of human body heat and electrochemical energy and who imprison their minds with an artificial reality known as the Matrix. Right, most of you have seen the movie. Um, One of the interesting things about that movie is the use of light. That when they're in the Matrix, there's this green hue that is behind everything that happens. The developers say that that they picked that because of the phosphorus green that used to come off of the old... PC computers. And to distinguish the real world from the matrix world, the light changes to a blue color, which looks much more normal, much less sickly than the green color of when they're in the matrix. When we read the book of Acts, we see this world that is spirit bathed, spirit-drenched world. A world where the Holy Spirit is moving and directing and guiding and speaking and healing and forming and transforming individuals as well as communities. God is alive in this world and people are alive to this God and they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit which Jesus gives to all who believe in his name. That is the real world where God is present and on the move everywhere and in every place. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people, including Christians, who live in a green-tinted world. A world that seems real, but it isn't real. A world where God rarely, if ever, does anything. That's not the real world, folks. We're in a sermon series that we're calling What's Next, and we're looking at what happened after Christ was crucified and then raised from the dead. And what happened next was the early church. We've been looking at that every week. At this point in the book of Acts, what we find is what's next is that the gospel is spreading. The gospel is spreading. And the way the gospel is spreading is that the Holy Spirit prompts people, and when the Holy Spirit prompts them, they obey the prompting. That's what I want to talk about this morning, is that we need to learn to obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit's prompting to get up and go. The Holy Spirit's prompting to ask questions, and the Holy Spirit's prompting to engage in faith 
conversations. Read along with me in the scripture for today, which is Acts 8, beginning at verse 26. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go down toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is... The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, I did not come here today to hear me speak. And the truth is, no one here came here merely to hear me speak. But we're here because we want to hear you speak. So open up our ears where they're stopped up. Open up our eyes where we've been blind. Open up our hearts where they've been stubbornly closed. Open us up, Lord, that we might see the real world and hear what it is that your spirit has to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Obey the spirit's prompting to get up and go. Right before Jesus ascended to be with the Father, he said to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But what happened was they were in Jerusalem, and the church started to grow and grow and grow in Jerusalem. And good things were happening there, and they're comfortable there, and they're familiar with Jerusalem. And so they stayed in Jerusalem until chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned. After Stephen was stoned, a terrible persecution happened against 
Christians and even those who had perhaps lived in Jerusalem or around it all their lives, many of them were forced to flee. And where they fled, the gospel spread. Philip found himself in Samaria. And as he preached the good news in Samaria, he got a tremendous response. People heard. People became Christians. Everything was going really well in Samaria. And then out of the blue, the Spirit said, get up and go south to a wilderness road. Well, that's a prompting. Was it audible? People often will ask me that. I think sometimes people probably hear something audible, but I think usually when the Spirit prompts us, it's a nudge, it's a something that we just start to think and know that we ought to do something or go somewhere or say something. And at least in my own life, if I don't respond and God really wants me to do it, I just keep hearing it. I, keep, I can't escape it. I might hear it when I'm reading scripture or when I'm reading a book or when I'm having a conversation with someone. I might even have a dream that reinforces it. I just keep hearing it because God wants me to obey the prompting. It's a wonderful thing about our Lord that he's on this grand adventure of the mission of the kingdom of God, and he wants us to be a part of this grand adventure. So the Spirit prods us and prompts us. If you're not used to hearing the Spirit's voice, he'll make it clear to you. Ask him. Ask him to give you ears to hear. Ask him to give you eyes to see where this God is on the move. Ask him. Ask him. I go through my calendar every day, and, and I ask him to go before me for this lunch or for this meeting or for this doctor's appointment or whatever it is that's on my calendar. Give me ears to hear what you want me to say and do. God wants to answer that prayer. He wants us on this grand adventure with him. A few years ago, well, many years ago now, many years ago, we were living in Mesa and I was pastor of a church in downtown inner city Phoenix, 25 miles from where we lived. There was a movement in the city at the time um, where faith communities were meeting also with government agencies and social agencies, and a real movement to try to revive and renew the city and address some of the really major issues that, uh, where people were suffering and blighted areas of the city. And it was, a, it was really a cool thing that was happening in Phoenix and also in other cities around the globe. I became part of this, this uh, conversation, and I was reading a lot of the books that others were reading and, and learning about global movements and how cities were being revitalized and renewed. And one of the things that I kept reading about was that Christians were moving into the city and becoming a part of the city as a part of the way that God was reviving the city. And I started saying to Tom, I think God is telling us we should move into the city. And we would have conversations about it, and 
very quickly came to the conclusion that we were not moving into the city. We had three young children. They were safe in where we were in Mesa. We were not going to do that. Well, this conversation happened off and on for three years because I just kept, I'd hear it when I'd read scripture, I would hear it when I was studying, and the, the whole point was that if Christians would, would move, not every Christian, but some Christians would move, then the neighborhood becomes your neighborhood, you vote in that city, the issues become your issues, you feel it in a way that you don't feel it if you're distant, and, um, and, and it was happening, I, I knew people in, um, I was serving on a board of a college in Spokane. I knew people that had moved into a really tough area in Spokane. I had a friend here that moved into a tough area. And, and I, so I knew that people were doing this, and it just kept eating at me. Well, um, eventually, this is like 1995, 1996-ish, and the... the area, just to give you an idea, the area around, the, this is before U of A and ASU were downtown, um, the area around this church where I was pastor, lots of buildings just burned out, gutted out, empty, empty lots everywhere, um, prostitution and drugs and crime going down literally on the lawn outside the church. I mean, it was a tough area at the time, very different today, but that was at the time. And... Um, and so uh, the city needed to be revitalized, and I, I was excited about this movement. I just wasn't excited about this particular prompting. And um, we brought in an expert on city, global city revitalization, a guy by the name of Ray Bakke, and he comes in. We had meetings for three or four days, lots of people from the city involved in this. One night, he's preaching in, our, in the saint. This, this event was all happening in, in our church, and he's preaching in the in the sanctuary, and there's several hundred people there, and I'm way in the back. There's no way he could see me. And he's preaching from Nehemiah 11. The context of that passage is that Jerusalem is in ruins, and they want to rebuild the city, and the leaders live in the city, and the leaders ask if one in ten people that live outside the city would move into the city to help uh, revitalize it and restore it and rebuild it. So he's preaching... And in the middle of his sermon, he stops preaching and he shouts, Gail Parker, if you are not asking 10% of your congregation to move into the city, shame on you. And then it goes back preaching. And I didn't hear any of the rest of the sermon. <laughs> Ah, and Tom was somewhere else in the sanctuary. He heard the same thing. And we get, we get in the car afterwards, and we are offended and mad. And how dare he? And then we were like, you know what? I think we're supposed to move into the city. <laughs> we did not move into the moat the most dangerous area of the city. But I will tell you, those of you who've been to our home, um, it's, it was not the, as nearly as nice a neighborhood as it was, you know, then as it is now. Most of the houses across our street have been bought and gutted and re, remade. And, but at the, at the time, 
for us, it was a significant move of faith. Now, I don't, I don't have any like big major thing to tell you other than I trust that the best we could, we have been faithful to be God's presence and to convey God's love and grace where we live and in the city all these years. And I'm sure that there will be a day where I see things that I can't see today. I see some of it today. And there will be some things that I see that I go, oh, wow, Lord, you did that, um, that I'm not aware of today. And I'm sure I'll see opportunities that I missed. But I'll tell you one thing. It has really been a great ride to be a part of, in a small way, what the Holy Spirit has been doing in and around us. I marvel at Philip's quick response to this because it took me so long. And, and sometimes I'm quick, but a lot of times I need more than one prompt. And, and for Philip, it wasn't even logical. Why would he go to a desert road? I love this quote from R.H.L. Shepherd, who said, Christianity does not consist in abstaining from doing things no gentleman would think of doing but in doing things that are unlikely to occur to anyone who is not in touch with the Spirit of Christ. Isn't that incredible? That it's not so much about not doing stuff. It's about doing things that you'd never do if you weren't in touch with the Spirit of God. And, of course, Philip discovers when he gets to this desert road this spiritually curious man. It's just incredible. You know, they, they get to exact the same spot, at exact on this dirt, deserted road, exact, you know, it's, I used to call this, when I preached on this text in the 90s, I used to say, this is a holy hookup. I can't say that anymore because hookup <laughs> means something different today than it did then. <laughs> I love the alliteration of it, so I spent a lot of time this week trying to come up with a different, different thing. And the best thing I could come up with was a consecrated uh, connection, which is not nearly as cool as holy hookup. <laughs> Obey the Spirit's prompting <laughs> to get up and go. If, if God is saying that to you, whether it's to go someplace or to go to someone, Obey it. Obey the Spirit's prompting to ask questions. Um, let's, let's take a minute and just talk about this man. We know he's an Ethiopian, which means he's traveled 1,600 miles to get from Ethiopia to Jerusalem because he wants to worship God, which means he's probably a Gentile, what they would have called in those days, a God-fearer. He was very curious and interested in Israel's God. Would have taken him about three months by chariot. So that's what he's done. He's a eunuch, which means he's been castrated. They did that in those days to people that were going to serve in the royal courts because they just didn't want to take any chances that there might be some illicit affair go on and mess with the royal bloodline. So he was in a part of a shamed class, even though he had a very important job. He traveled 1,600 miles to get from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to the temple so he could worship, and when he got there, he couldn't go in. 
Because Deuteronomy 23.1 specifically forbids eunuchs from entering the temple. He's in a chariot, which is like the stretch limo of the Roman Empire. So he, we know he's wealthy. He's, he's treasurer to the, to the queen. He's reading a scroll, his own scroll, which again tells us he's very wealthy because he has the means to buy a handwritten scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he's educated enough that he can read it in the Greek language, which is what he was reading. And he's reading aloud because that's what they did in those days. Spirit tells Philip, go over to the chariot and join it. And then Philip just asks a question that opens up this whole conversation. It's amazing to me that Philip is so willing to engage a man that is so incredibly different from him, in every way different from him. And it's also amazing that this man is so humble and teachable to learn from someone who's so incredibly different from him. They're crossing, both of them, huge ethnic and religious and economic barriers because of the Spirit. Do you understand what you're reading? It's just an, it's a wonderful question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian is full of questions. Three that he asks in this text. He's incredibly curious about scripture. Who is this talking about? What does this mean? Are you incredibly curious? Are you a questioner? How many questions do you think it, the average adult asks in a day? Guess. Three? Thirty? I couldn't, I'm not quite 100% confident about the research <laughs> because I found a variety of things. Mostly I found six. Uh, but it might be as many as 25. How many questions do you think the average preschooler asks? How many? 200. You're right. U of A researched recently. 200. That's the average. How many do you think the average four to six-year-old asks a day? Thousands. <laughs> According to that same U of A research, 400. So if you are a teacher or a parent of children that age, no wonder you're exhausted. You are. You have every reason to be exhausted. <laughs> when we become adults, what happens to us? Why, what happens to a, our curiosity? Man, if we lose that, we've stopped growing. We've stopped learning. We have been to several gatherings. Tom and I have been to several gatherings lately. And, uh, you know, usually we'll get in the car afterwards. Who'd you talk to? What'd you find out? What, what are they like? You know. And several times recently, Tom has said to me, I don't think anybody asked me one question.
question about me. Now, Tom is a very good question asker. I, I'm not naturally a good question asker. I, I have to work at it. I pray about it a lot. Again, when I look at my calendar for the day, if I'm going for strength training, I pray, Lord, give me questions that I can ask Carl today when I'm working with him. Help me, help me think, help me listen well and ask good questions. We've got to be especially curious about those that are not already in our tribe, folks. What are you reading? What are you thinking about? What are you excited about? What are you struggling with? What, who are you and, and how, can I, how, can I, uh, how can I love you is what we're doing. D uh, Jordan was talking about it up here when he's talking about the, the Thursday night thing. Um, we're crossing Midtown leadership at least. It feels a spirit's prompting, right, for us to engage with our neighbors. And so creating opportunities for us to cross economic boundaries and social boundaries and uh, ethnic boundaries and whatever boundaries there are, the question is, will we obey the Spirit's prompting to get up and go and then to, to be honestly curious about somebody that's not already in our tribe? Because that's the first step. In our being able to love people, we have to know them first, right? And then for Philip, his question led to this incredible opportunity to have a faith conversation. Because this man was already there, he just was waiting for Philip to show up. Obey the prompting to get up and go, obey the prompting to ask questions, obey the prompting to engage in faith conversations. What, um, what the man was reading is what scholars often call the, the suffering servant passages. There are several in, this, in the prophets. And Jesus um, identified himself with that, and the early disciples also did. I love the suffering servant passages whenever I'm talking to somebody who says, I can't believe in God because... You know, there's so much suffering in the world because our God himself suffered. Our God is not alien to suffering. He actually, he, he actually can redeem suffering. So the, the spirit, um, or Philip, started to point to Jesus that he was a sheep led to slaughter. He was silent. He didn't open his mouth. Justice was denied him. His life was taken away from him. Philip started where the man was, and then he just, he just explained, oh, this is what it is you're reading, and it's about Jesus. And I'm sure he told him about how that when he died, when his life was taken away from him, God actually made a way for all of our sins to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled to God and to one another. And, and that when he rose from the dead, he gives us all who believe in him this, this incredible resurrection, new life in him. Maybe he talked about baptism. We don't know all the details because it was quite a ride he was on, right? Literally quite a ride, but also I think spiritually for both of them, 
what a ride this was. You might be saying, I'm no Philip. Spirit has never prompted me like that. Or I'm no Philip. I could never interpret scriptures if somebody asked me to do that. I could never do that. All I can tell you is this is the real world where the spirit is actually at work. It's not like Philip had any training for this. It's not like the Ethiopian had any training for this. They were where they were, and they just listened to the spirit of God. The next step in your faith life may just simply be to trust God to work in you and to work through you because that's the real world in which the Spirit has you. The more we pay attention, the more we get used to paying attention, the more we'll recognize the promptings and the sooner. Now, not every obedience leads to baptizing somebody. Not every obedience is is, as... you know, has this tight ending like we see in this scripture. But we're somewhere in the story God is writing. Even if we don't know where we are in it, we just be obedient. And we're obedient even if, if it feels like we might look foolish or if it's risky or even if we're not really sure, is this God's voice or my own voice? We just have to step out in faith and trust that God is going to do what God is going to do. Luke was telling me a story about Sean, a guy who had spent some time with some charismatics, and he started thinking, maybe I'm not taking the Holy Spirit seriously enough. And so he started praying that God would tell him things and and um, that he would act on things that God was saying. And um, so every time he'd walk into a, a, like a, a building, you know, he would pray, God, who am I supposed to talk to? Give me words. Show me who it is. And um, so at one point, he goes into this coffee shop, and Luke said, for the sake of the story, I can call it Starbucks. And um, anyway, he, um, he walks in, and he's praying. He's looking for an opportunity, and he sees this woman, older lady with some gray hair, sitting at a table. She's not looking up. And he sees her sitting there, and um, he feels like the Spirit is telling him that that uh, to go up and ask her, does she know someone named Katie, and that he would pray for Katie's healing. So he's excited about this. He's reading the book of Acts. These are going to be signs and wonders and miracles, just like in Acts. And so he goes up to the lady, and he says, uh, he's ordered his coffee. And after he orders his coffee, he goes, walks over, gives her attention, and he says, excuse me, do you know Katie? And she says, No. oh, sorry, my mistake, and he he turns away. And she says, why do you ask? Is she supposed to meet you here? So now he's at a crossroads, right? (laughs) He can lie, or he can tell her the truth. So he decides to tell her the truth. He says, well, this is going to sound very strange, but I've been a Christian for a long time, and I believe God is real, and I've been asking him to talk to me and give me chances to talk to people about things that matter in their life, and I thought he told me to talk to you about someone named Katie and to pray with you for her healing. The lady, a little amused, and she says, well, I don't know Katie. Okay, sorry to bother you. 
So now he has to wait awkwardly for the coffee to be made, and he's waiting right near the table where this lady is sitting. Drink comes out. He kind of waves an awkward goodbye to her, and to his surprise, she waves him over to the table. She says, I've been sitting here hoping someone would talk to me about this. I've started to wonder about some things in my life. I was just thinking about that when you walked over. Tell me about the God you believe in. So he prayed, and then they spent the next hour and a half talking about the gospel. The Spirit isn't prompting us to get up and go, to ask questions, to engage in faith conversations, especially with those who are outside of our tribe. The Ethiopian's last words were, gosh, there's some water. What's to keep me from being baptized? And you know what? Nothing was. So Philip got in with him, and he baptized him. And he came up out of the water as a person that now belonged fully to Jesus Christ. And he also came out of the water as a brother to Philip, and Philip a brother to him. They never saw each other again. Tradition has it that this Ethiopian went back and and did evangelism in his own country, brought Christ to Ethiopia. And, of course, Philip went on to do what Philip was called to do and preach wherever he went. What's next, folks? What's next is to obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit. That's what's next. He may be prompting you to get baptized. Maybe prompting you to get up and go to someone or maybe to some place. He may be prompting you to get better at asking questions and being genuinely curious about those who are not in your tribe or to engage in faith conversations, letting God use you in your weakness as well as your strength. The real world, folks, is a spirit-bathed, spirit-drenched world. Let's live in that world. And let's enjoy the ride. Let's pray.